This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for a bigger job, try the superior strength of hefty large black bags. This is Nick Morgan, author of Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both keep up with the latest ideas in the quickly changing fields of modern marketing and sales. And don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing podcast. If I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you some time. And if you have a question that I can answer, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com and I might play it and answer it in a future episode. I'd love to hear from you. And now, a word from our sponsor. <laughs> this show is a labor of love that I do in my spare time. My day job is running a marketing agency called Artillery, where we work primarily with manufacturers and industrial companies who call us in when they're serious about growth, but have realized that their old school marketing and sales is almost completely ineffective at attracting the modern buyer who doesn't want to be marketed or sold to. In our engagements with clients, we take a sales-based approach to their marketing and help them align their sales and marketing around their most profitable target customers, arm the sales team with technology to make selling easier, create sales content that makes buying easier, not to mention getting better results on Google, and then show them how to insource as much of the marketing as possible. For more about us, visit salesartillery.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Dr. Nick Morgan to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World, published by Harvard Business Review Press. Nick Morgan is one of America's top communication coaches and thinkers. He's been commissioned by Fortune 50 companies to write for many CEOs and presidents. He's coached people to give congressional testimony to appear on the Today Show, and to take on the investment community. He's even worked widely with political leaders, and he has delivered keynote speeches around the world. He regularly appears on CNN as an expert commentator and as a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review. He's the author of Give Your Speech, Change the World, and Power Cues, both also published by Harvard Business Review Press. And interesting fact, he first started writing speeches for Virginia Governor Charles S. Robb. Nick, congratulations on Can You Hear Me? And welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Douglas. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. So, Chuck Robb, I, I picked that out because on May 15th, 1982, I was graduating from 
Virginia Military Institute, and Charles Robb, the governor of Virginia, I don't think he'd even been governor for a year, he gave the commencement speech there. And my question for you, Nick Morgan, did you write that speech? (laughs) I wrote so many commencement speeches uh, for the governor back in the day because unlike many other governors, he insisted on having a different one every single commencement speech. Most governors were content to give the same speech over and over again. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is this is the first day of the rest of your lives. Congratulations to the parents of the uh, of the graduates and all the usual sort of thing. Governor Governor Rob insisted on a different one, so each time. So, um, yeah, I wrote, I think, something on the order of fifty commencement speeches. My goodness! Well, I remember when he got there. Of course, I kind of remember that day, and he made a joke about how he wasn't planning on doing commencement speeches that year. But then I think the head of the Virginia Senate or something had been to, had gone to VMI and had said, "Yeah, I, I really would like you to come up and speak there." So I don't know if that was true or not, but it made us feel special. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> we we try to make you feel special. Thank you, thank you. So uh, I wanted to ask you, as a graduate of Princeton University, when you go to your class reunions, do your classmates give you a lot of grief for having published all these books and done so much work with Harvard Business Review? (laughs) Uh, Occasionally, yes. In fact, there's a fair amount of, let's call it healthy rivalry between those two institutions. Yes. So they accuse me of going over to the if not the dark side, the crimson side uh, occasionally, because, of course, Princeton's colors are orange and black. Right, right. Well, so, I don't know. I, it's uh, you, you, Maybe you could say to your Princeton friends, hey, you know, I, I've moved on, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, But at any rate, I received not too long ago an email from um, the folks at Harvard Business Review uh, Press and uh, one of the publicists, and they mentioned your book, and I was not aware of it. And I looked at that, and this was right after – most of us had started to go into this work from home quarantine, even more virtual uh, scenario we're all in. And I thought, oh my goodness, <laughs> this book has to be rushed up to the front of the line. This is really <laughs> important. And the book was published in 2018, but I've got to wonder, has there been a spike in sales and, and interest in the book since the advent of this coronavirus quarantine? There sure has. Uh, and of course, uh it's uh, unfortunate the conditions under which uh, the book sales increased. I, I, I would very much uh, wish for everybody that we didn't have to go through this, and, and I would sacrifice, cheerfully sacrifice my book sales for that. But, but uh, it was one small silver lining, at least, uh, at least in this household. I'm just grateful the book could be useful. Well, it certainly is. And a few weeks ago, uh, not knowing what to do, so I, I do a, this. Uh, I publish an interview every Friday on the Marketing Book Podcast, like 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 this one. Hmm. And uh, what I started doing once I had to leave the office and I was hunkered down at home and kind of trying to figure out, like a lot of people, uh, resetting everything. I started doing a daily series called "Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails." Nice. It's been a lot of fun, and I'll have to get you on there if we continue to remain in um, quarantine. But it's all the past guests, uh-huh. and. I've been ta- I've been reading your book as I've been going through it, and I've been <laughs> bringing it up quite a bit. So, uh, for folks that may have been listening in on that, this is the Nick Morgan I've been uh, I've been talking about. <laughs> so, I wanted to read one short excerpt from the beginning of the book. You write, "Too much of our personal and work lives today relies on the virtual. Indeed, most organizations with an international reach couldn't function without the digital means of communication they use every day." 
but we need to learn to live smarter and communicate differently to survive in this brave new digital world. We need to begin to consciously add the emotional subtext back into our virtual communications to avoid the costs, personal and financial, associated with miscommunication. That's the subject of this book. So my first question is, how is the digital era a communications disaster? <laughs> well, the the real problem is that we still communicate as if we were communicating face-to-face because we evolved that way. We're hardwired that way. It's natural to us. Uh, we care less about specific words that we use and that other people use when they're talking to us than we care about people's intent. So I want to know, what do you intend toward me? And I get most of that from your body language when we're communicating face-to-face. Put us in the virtual world and we immediately lose all that body language. So our our information about each other's intent becomes much harder uh, to get, much uh, much vaguer, much less consistent. Uh, we just get simply get less information about it. And, and what happens is we make up that information because our our brains don't like to be deprived of that essential information. So we make it up. And what happens as a result is the dreaded negativity bias that comes in the uh, virtual world. And so if I'm not clear about what you intend, then I'm going to assume the worst. And there are good survival reasons for that. If I assume the worst, then I'll be braced for problems if they arise. But of course, most of the time, we're not genuinely dealing with saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths attacking us. And so to be braced for the worst means that we misunderstand each other and that we assume negativity when it isn't there. I can give you a very simple example. I often, back when I was speaking live about this to people, way back in 2018, uh, I would often ask the following question. How many of you have sent this email? Great job. Good job. Nice job. A two-word email with or without an exclamation point. 100% of the audiences raise their hands. Everybody sent that email. If, if they have uh, employees, they've sent it to their direct reports. If they have uh, uh, colleagues, they've sent it to their colleagues. Uh, and it's just an attaboy or an attagirl. It's a nice job. Uh, perfectly harmless, friendly, nice email. Good people send those emails. And I'll say, would it surprise you to learn that 60% of the time, that email is taken as sarcastic by the recipient? Really? Now, when Yeah, when I was talking to live audiences, I would get an audible gasp from the audience at that point, and they'd be uh, shocked. And I, at first, I just sort of went with that reaction and said, yeah, it's, it's uh, surprising, isn't it? And went on to talk about miscommunication. But then I, I started digging deeper because I realized what was really going on there, if people are being honest, is they're thinking to themselves, well, wait a minute, how could the other person misunderstand that? And underneath that was usually something like, how could the other person be so stupid? <laughs> and, and, and so I started to say, uh, well, that's, that's an understandable impulse, but it's the wrong question. And the right question is, how did I not make my intent clear? And the answer to that is, when you say nice job, if you say it with a sneer face-to-face, then I would immediately get that you mean it sarcastically. If, on the other hand, you said it with a smile or a nice pat on the arm or a wink, Mm -hmm. then I'd immediately get that that you meant it in a nice way. Lacking those clues, again, I have a negativity bias. I'm going to assume 60% of the time that it's sarcastic. 
and, and so that's where the real problem begins in the virtual world. It's that lack of information about intent, human intent, that causes us to go negative uh, and, and, to, uh, and to crave uh, information about, uh, uh, th that we're not getting about the other person's communication. You write that the virtual water we drink simply makes us thirstier. I just <laughs> loved that line. Explain what you mean by that. Well, if you think it, it's easiest to understand in terms of social media, if you think think of uh, Facebook likes and, and Instagram likes and this kind of thing that where it's like communication, but it's not really real communication in the sense of uh, that we're talking about here of, of body language. And so we don't really get that deep sense of warmth we get when we get a hug from another human being. Instead, we get a little taste of it. That makes us crave more. It's addictive, but it doesn't satisfy. Uh, and so it's easy to understand in that context. But the same thing happens, uh, and I'm sure many of your listeners are now spending huge amounts of time on Zoom or some other video uh, conferencing software. Um, and uh, as I talk to people widely, I hear people talking about Zoom fatigue. Um, and we can get into the reasons of why video conferencing is, is, is hard. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but uh, uh, the, the, main, the, the main takeaway there is that it isn't the same as face-to-face -face still, even though video conferencing is better than an audio conference, which is better than a text-based right. communication. Each one has more information than the one before it, but uh, we're still in the position of, uh, of being starved a little bit for the kind of information we care about, again, which is human intent. Yes, and I think just acknowledging that is going to make everyone a better communicator. It certainly did for me. I, your book certainly underscored the limitations of virtual communication. And I think it also put to rest anyone who says, oh, it's just as good. <laughs> it's not. It's very clearly not. But there are certain things that we can do. And for the listener's benefit, the first part of the book, uh, Nick talks about the most important problems with virtual communication. And then he lays out some things that can try to make it a little bit better. But I just want to ask one other question about the beautifully written introduction to the book. Remind listeners what an opportunity cost is. I often associate that with economics classes. Uh, and explain what you mean when you say that the opportunity cost of free, fast information is surprisingly high. Yeah, so the promise that we got years ago, and uh, and then once again when we got our cell phones, but years ago when we first started getting virtual communication, was that it was going to be uh, frictionless, um, and uh, it was going to be uh, so. Therefore, it was going to be easy to do, and it was it was going to be asynchronous, meaning that we could do it whenever we wanted. Um, but the result was instead that we got information overload and 24-7 communication. Um, and so the, the price of all that easy communication, it's so easy to send an email versus typing up a letter and, and, and putting it in an envelope and putting a stamp on it and walking it to the, to the post office box. Um, the, we get ease of communication, but as a result, we get overwhelmed with uh, too much information. We become, as a result, a world of skimmers and triagers, um, and we misread and we read too fast and we skip things that we should read and so on and so forth. So the opportunity cost of all this easy, free information is is much higher sort of than we think about. And and the further point is it's not going away. <laughs> if that was obvious before, it's really obvious now during the coronavirus. <laughs> we are living in the virtual world for the rest of our, uh, the rest of our days um, and our children's days and our grandchildren's days and on 
into the future. But uh, it helps us, or it will make our lives better if uh, if we start thinking about some of the costs, uh, and then trying to do something to mitigate those costs. Yes. Well, speaking of that, talk a bit more about what role the lack of feedback plays in virtual communications, and maybe some more specifics about what can be done to try to mitigate that lack of feedback. Yeah, so the surprising thing I found was uh, in that lack of feedback that, um, and by that we mean you're not getting information about uh, that we typically get through body language, about human intent. So if I send an email, I'm relying on your phrasing and my reading of your phrasing to decide whether you mean it sarcastically or if it's vague or I don't understand it or I'm not clear what you want me to do as a result of that. All these things happen with emails. Um, the, the, uh, the research shows that people think they understand emails coming to them and the emails they send 90% of the time. We're pretty confident about our reading of and, and sending of emails. Of the our actual, own emails. Of our own emails. <laughs> right. the, the, the actual comprehension rate is 50%. So it's not much better than chance. It's no better than chance, in fact. And, and so that's unwarranted confidence. Um, uh, and and the, the lack of feedback is part of that. We, we don't get the information back. And so we think everything's fine and misunderstandings then uh, develop and, t- and take a long time to sort out. But one of the most surprising results of that is that we lack a- empathy. And I was really surprised to learn that because you'd think, okay, if I'm not getting information about how the other person is feeling as a result of my communication to them, it would make me more curious. Uh, But instead, what happens because our ways of reading other people's intent um, is so automatic, it's unconscious, we do it through body language when it's face-to-face, then we don't have the conscious means to say, oh, I'm not getting feedback here, therefore I should check in with that other person and ask them how they're feeling or how what I sent them struck them or how they're reacting to it. We don't do that consciously because that's an unconscious feedback loop that we've relied on in the past. Uh, and so lacking that, um, we, we lack empathy as a result. We assume the worst. We assume that silence on an audio conference, for example, everybody's experiences, they make a point and they wait for the, um, the courses of approval. And instead, what do they get? They get six awkward seconds of silence. And the reason for that is probably because people have their audio conference, uh, the phone buttons on mute, they're doing email or some other task. Playing Candy so, Crush. Yeah, right. Or, or they're in the bathroom or something like that. And so they're, they're lunging for that mute button and they're thinking about what to say. And, and then they're trying to chime in. And as a result, there's this lag. And, and instead of thinking to ourselves, oh, that's just the communications lag, we think, oh, I, they're angry at me or they don't like what I said or they're <laughs> indifferent to what I said. And everybody makes those assumptions, even consciously aware of the difficulties. So just for fun, I took the empathy quiz in your book. Oh, how'd you do? I got a 26 out of 40, which puts okay. me in the middle range. All right. All right. So you're, you're average. That's, that's good. <laughs> yeah. I shared this with my daughter, who's a college senior who was home for spring break and then told not to come back and she said, yeah, you need to work on that, Dad. So, uh, <laughs> so thanks, Dr. Yeah. Morgan. Uh, my pleasure. <laughs> what? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, uh, to foment better understanding between father and daughter. <laughs> <laughs> Let the healing begin. So how can we appear more empathetic? Because one of the takeaways I had from the book is that there are certain things that we almost have to over-exaggerate 
when we're doing virtual communication? Yes, it's analogous to uh, uh, thinking about when when you're on an audio conference. Um, again, for technical reasons that have to do with the compression of the sound, your emotions your, in your voice don't come through as clearly um, as they do in, uh, in face-to-face. And so you have to kind of amp up your enthusiasm or your anger or, or whatever you're feeling and that you want to convey to the, to the rest of the team. Um, and, and you have to do that in each of the, uh, each of the virtual communications venues. Uh, and so in text-based communication, I recommend using, uh, using emojis. And, and as I've talked about that, I get this hilarious reaction from people, depending on whether they're over 40 or under 40. <laughs> if, if they're over 40, they're, well, come on, emojis are childish. They don't belong in the business uh, setting. And, and I say, get over it. It's time to listen to the younger generation. If you're under 40, you say, yeah, well, sure. I use them already. So uh, it's a very much a generational divide there. But uh, we all need to use learn to use emojis because emojis are a very simple crude, admittedly crude way to put back in the facial expressions, in essence, the body language that are missing from text-based communications. So back to that email I talked about at the beginning, nice job, good job, great job. If you put a smiley face at the end of that, there's no doubt what you mean. Mm-hmm. It means you're being friendly. You can't read that sarcastically if there's a smiley face there. So you may feel a little silly putting it in there, but it's going to help. And it's going to reduce miscommunication and cut down on the amount of untangling you have to do later on. Uh, and so uh, use them. Yeah, I've got a client and he's in his 60s and he uses them all the time. And uh, now, after having read your book, which included a fair amount of the science behind all this, I'm thinking... I better start using them. And actually, there's been times where I've thrown a GIF in, but I was usually being funny or, you know, trying to get something, uh, some other communication on there. And now I really do understand because at first when I read it in your book, I thought you were kind of joking. But um, <laughs> but it's the no, real. I'm deadly serious. <laughs> yes, yes. And um, you also talk a few places in the book about the importance of stories, uh, particularly with virtual communication. Explain what you mean by stories, because I think uh, maybe like empathy, that's often confused with other things, and stories may not always be uh, well understood. And, and why you mention the stories, using stories in the book? Sure. So the 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 thing about virtual communication is lacking uh, many of these uh, clues about attitude and intent. It's less engaging, uh, and. Everybody reports being bored on an audio conference, for example, even with teammates that you know well and get along well with and and have worked with for many years. Uh, And so engaging people more powerfully means telling stories. And the simple reason why that's the case or the way to understand this most easily is to think back when you were two um, or imagine being two years old and wandering into the kitchen and somebody's carelessly left the uh, burner on. So you see this glowing orange orb, uh, and out of curiosity, you put your finger on it because you haven't learned yet, and and your reaction is rage, terror, pain, confusion, bewilderment. How could the world be so awful? You never, ever forget, and so you never put your finger on that hot stove again. 
That's the way memory works. Our memories are essentially a series of little videos that we record to ourselves in situations primarily that involve strong emotions. We remember those things the best. As the emotions get weaker, we put them in lesser and lesser important categories. So the most painful things, sadly, are the, are the strongest teachers and the things that we remember most vividly. Pleasure comes a little lower on that list, uh, but it's intensity of emotion that causes us to remember things. So stories are facts, um, incidences, things that happen with emotions attached to good stories. And so that's why we remember stories. Uh, and often I've had the experience as a public speaker over many years, uh, having people come up to me and saying, I saw you speak 10 years ago. I don't remember what you said, but I do remember that story you told about so-and-so. And they'll immediately go into that storytelling mode and tell me that story again, and they'll get it pretty close to uh, correct. So um, that's taught me um, that storytelling lodges in the memory powerfully because of the emotions attached to the things that happen. That's the way our brain works. That's what storytelling does. And so if you want to engage people in a virtual world where there are fewer reasons to engage and fewer things to hold them and keep their attention, then you need to tell more stories. And even I remember that story Governor Rob told in that commencement <laughs> speech years ago. Wow, that tingling it's as if is you, working. It's as if you planned it. Way to start with the uh, with the example. That's great. Yeah, no, it just just occurred to me, and I was just thinking yeah. back to what what uh, what he said. So, in one of your chapters about the the problems of virtual communication, you talk about how you know, for better or worse, our life online is public. And explain what you mean by that, and specifically what you mean when you say that. Passivity is dangerous online. Well, I, I, I can give you a, a, a quick example. Uh, Maybe in a story I, format. No, I'm kidding. In a story, in fact, I will give you a story. So I was working about a year ago, back when we still met people face-to-face. -face. I was working with an executive, as I frequently do, uh, because they had communications issues. In this case, it was a CEO of a publicly traded company in, a, in an industry which was um, – a startup. It was a startup company in, in, in an industry which he was desperately trying to transform, and I can't say what the industry is, but let's just say it needs it needs to be transformed. Uh, and so he was passionate and and charismatic and 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 convinced that what he was doing was right. And as a result, he pushed his employees very hard, um, and frequently at the end of a day, he would indulge in shouting matches because of the of the passion that was. The, the tension that he felt in trying to in trying to build this company and transform this industry. Um, I'm not defending his his uh, shouting at employees. I'm just uh, helping you understand it. So, um, in fact, it was uh, just a week or two before I was brought in that he had fired a whole division of his company. Now, because it's a small company, it wasn't that many people. It was only half a dozen, but still, it was the whole marketing department. Uh, and because he was angry uh, and he felt they weren't doing things as, as uh, aggressively as he wanted them to. Uh, and so they did what a lot of employees have the option to do now, which is to go on to this uh, uh, website called Glassdoor, which mm. I'm sure many, mm. of your, uh, many of your listeners have heard of. It's a place where you can go talk about your em employee and you can say nice things, your employer, you can say nice things. Most people don't. Most people say negative things uh, and, and they predominate on Glassdoor, but it's a place to go then and find out 
what the employees think about working for the organization that you might be thinking of going to work for, for example. Uh, and so as we sat down uh, to start to work together, the first thing he said to me was, look at these reviews on Glassdoor. How can you get them taken down? And I just laughed at him, and he did not appreciate that. And I said, you don't understand how the internet works. Uh, you can't take those down. That's They will be there forever. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean about uh, the, the fixed nature of, of the uh, of the persona that evolves about you, and, and you may think I'm not important. I don't have that many uh, th- that many uh, things about me online. But you'd be surprised that the the machine world never forgets, and so there's this always a surprising amount of information about people out there, uh, and and it may or may not be reflective of how they feel they should be presented to the world. Typically, it's not exactly how you'd like to be presented. Right. Uh, and, and in this case, it was it was particularly unpleasant for him. And so I said to him, the only cure for this is to get lots of people to say nice things about you. Um, and to do that, you're going to have to change your ways. And, and then we got to work. And as I say, he was not pleased with that answer, but he finally grudgingly accepted it and, and got to work to try to uh, uh, to try to change his communication style and 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 be a little more reasonable in his behavior. Um, and and uh, so the. The, but the online world was only going to was only going to change. The online reflection of him was only going to change over time as people said more and more nice things. So you started laughing at him when he said that, and what, all I could think is that he was probably thinking, "Well, I fired my marketing people. Now I'm going to have to fire Nick Morgan." <laughs> Nobody laughs at me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so uh, at least it would have been a self fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> right. What? Um, but I run into folks who say, "Ah, oh, no, it's that's you know they don't they don't understand the importance of it," and it brings to mind you know the notion of nature abhors a vacuum. You either put it out there or someone else will. What do you say to folks who? I guess you just sort of answered that just now about you have to put more out there. I guess is there some other way to help people understand better that. They need to be more. They need to be less passive and more aggressive about what they're putting out there. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that uh, you have a voice in the world, um, it's. I liken it to uh, back in the day when we used to go to work in a workplace um, before the coronavirus. Um, you wouldn't think of going to work in your pajamas. And so you put uh, you 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 put on a costume in essence, and you put you take on a role when you go to work. You're not necessarily precisely your home self in the workplace. And in fact, one of the things that's so stressful about the virus era is that the blurring of the home role and the work role becomes uh, becomes extreme, and we're all struggling with uh, with that. And the kids showing up on the Zoom conference and all this sort of thing. Uh, but uh, you naturally play a role at work. You're, you're the you're the worker, or you're the boss, or, or uh, you're the uh, uh, the VP for marketing, or something like that. Um, and and we take that for granted. But in the online world, uh, we seem to think we can just sit back and be passive and let whatever show up shows up. But uh, if we're going to take charge of that uh, that picture that emerges of us, then we need to put on our best suit and 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 dress up for that in the same way we would to go to work. Mm-hmm. And you talk about that even towards the end of the book about how it's not like this 1950s dichotomy. It's 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 blending together. And when I see all this going on with the coronavirus, 
it makes me think of uh, that authenticity that I've been yearning for. It shows people, even news reporters, uh, you know, all these people that are on uh, television, although I've tried to stop watching any television news. But uh, you can see these people, and they just seem more uh, human. And that brings to mind another story. I'm sorry to keep joking on that. But my daughter, the one we just mentioned earlier, when she was in um, college, she I think after her first year, she applied to be a sailing instructor at the Yacht Club here. Hmm. And for some reason, we were talking and uh, about this, and I told her that when I'm looking at hiring an, an employee, one of the first things I do is go on social media. and she said, you, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. People, people shouldn't, they can't look at that. And I said, well, we do. I mean, it's public information and I like to see how they, you know, represent themselves and see if there's maybe some similarity between what is, uh, what they're presenting and, and what they are really like. And so that really sunk in. And the next thing I know, cause she was still applying for this job all the pictures on her Facebook page changed to <laughs> pictures of her being captain of the sailing team in high school and <laughs> lots of sailing go. pictures. Yeah. She got the job. Excellent. So, Excellent. Yeah. You know, maybe at some point, you know, maybe dad won't seem like he's quite as, uh, quite as uh, stupid about that sort of thing. So we've touched on this a bit, but you talk about emotional connection is so important to communications. Is there anything else that, any other tricks or tips that people have to try to convey emotion? Like I even talked about some of the words you should be using. Yeah. So if we think about it as a hierarchy with text-based communication um, at the root, and the most common was most of us still send huge amounts of email, um, text messages themselves. If, if uh, your workplace has Slack, you're probably on that even more than you are on email. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we spend a huge amount of time uh, sending each other written messages. The opportunities there for misunderstanding are the, are the biggest and, and, and most uh, obvious, at least on audio conferences, you can check if somebody says something that surprises you, you can ask. Um, so at that, at that, the second level audio conference, it's a little better. And then the best is video conferencing because you can see the other person's face and you get uh, some sense of their, uh, of their intent um, and their emotions. Uh, but uh, uh, it's still there's still some aspects of video conferencing that, uh, as I alluded to earlier, are not the same as being there face to face. So we've got opportunities for misunderstanding at all three levels, um, and the the idea is to put back in, um, whether it's in a text based communication or in uh, uh, over an audio conference or in, in video conference, put back in the emotional words that are lacking because the medium cuts them out. So if I, you and I were talking face to face and you start talking about your daughter, you know, I would see the affection in your eyes and I would see the smile on your face. And I, and I know that uh, you cared about your daughter. Um, if we were having that conversation uh, over text, the tone might not be as clear. And I might wonder, is, is he being hard on his daughter? And does he think she's, um, stupid or something for not knowing this about about Facebook. Um, and and of course, that's not the case, but I might have that impression. And so you need to put in the words that indicate how you're feeling, um, uh, how enthusiastic you are about uh, about this or, or this uh, the, or that moment. Uh, you need to say, for instance, on an audio conference to your colleagues, that's a great idea, Jim. I'm thrilled that you brought this up and that's fantastic or I'm worried about this. It's, it, it has the added advantage 
if you have teenage children at home, uh, they will think you're you're crazy, and that's always a good thing. Uh, is to alarm I don't have to work hard kids. at conveying that to my kids. Excellent. So, uh, so this will just be the nail in the coffin for them, and they'll be <laughs> convinced. Right. Then, yeah, yeah but, and then uh, I'll throw in a putting few those adjectives. words in. Yeah, yeah, putting those words in. Excellent, wonderful, excited, just to to amp it up so that people know uh, how you're feeling. Because remember, it's being muted. It's like talking through uh, the proverbial tin can and string. It's just the information doesn't get through as clearly the stuff that people care about. Your intent. Yes, yes. So, Nick, we've got to talk about the webinar chapter. At the end of each chapter, you have a brief chapter summary, which includes maybe a half dozen or dozen bullet points that recap the key issues. And at the end of the chapter on the webinar, you have only one bullet point. And it says, webinars are a miserable form of communication, semicolon figure out ways to make them better. And then <laughs> earlier in the chapter, you wrote, webinars, for most people, are a form of torture. <laughs> Nick, what's going on there? Yeah, so the, the, I, I do reserve my uh, special uh, special loathing for webinars uh, for a couple of reasons. But first, let me say, as one of the results of, of the coronavirus is that I've been asked to do literally now dozens of of uh, webinars on the subject of teleworking. <laughs> so uh, those words are coming, are coming back home to roost. <laughs> That's right. That, those words are coming back to haunt me on a, on a daily basis now. And in fact, uh, one webinar uh, early on, uh, the uh, introducer introduced me as the guy who said this about webinars. So that was a nice setup for uh, for the webinar. Well, actually, it probably gave you greater credibility <laughs> with the people about to watch. Yeah, so we know from the research a number of things about webinars. Uh, first of all, the drop-off rate is huge. So after about 10 minutes, uh, a majority of people drop off. Now, if if webinars were a great form of communication, that wouldn't happen. So that raises the question, why? What's going on? Uh, and, and of course, um, the issue is uh, that uh, that the amount of information, as we've described all along here, getting through is less, and and so you have to work much much harder. But the ten minute um, uh, milestone is key, and the reason for that is um, we don't have a huge amount of good research on this. It's still under undergoing, but it seems to be pretty clear that attention spans as they've typically been measured in the face-to-face world, they're about 20 minutes, 21 minutes. In the online world, they seem to be much shorter, about 10 minutes. They seem to be about half that. And that's, again, because the level of engagement isn't as high. Uh, And so what you need to do every 10 minutes or so to make webinars better is to change up something. Mm -hmm. Either have an interactive uh, section, um, maybe show a different kind of... uh, uh, visual uh, information with switch from slides to video or video to slides. Um, uh, but mostly it's about bringing in the audience in some significant way. So interactivity appears to be the key to keep people engaged. Uh, and so you can argue about that or fight that or ignore it at your peril. But it seems to me, given the evidence that we need to work hard to make to make webinars better. Um, and And let me just stress, there's a deep misunderstanding about what attention spans mean. 
as I've talked to people about this, attention spans, people think, means once you lose somebody's attention, then they're gone as if they were put in a rocket and sent to Mars. They're never coming back. That's not what attention spans are. Attention spans are simply a moment or two of inattention. You can easily recharge people's attention spans by getting them to do something. Um, simple, like take a deep breath or stand up and stretch or have a drink of water or coffee or something. Um, again, ask a question, have a bit of interactivity. It, it doesn't take a huge amount to get people back. It's just that after 10 minutes online, we need a refresh. And it's building that in that helps. Yes. And as I read that chapter, I remembered a very small number of instances over the years where I have watched webinars where people were doing some of those things, where they were really engaging. They were calling people's names out. They were asking questions. Uh, they were even offering a reward, like I think you you had there, where you can really try. There's so much more that people can do yeah. um, to get them engaged. One question I was wondering about, do you think that if there's not going to be a recorded version of the webinar, does that uh, get more people to attend and, and perhaps uh, engage? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I don't uh, – um, so what you're describing there is scarcity value in, in essence. Uh, and so if you tell people at the beginning, you alert them that this this is a, a one and done, that it'll be gone forever, then I, I imagine there might be a small increase. Uh, I think – Scarcity value is an intellectual concept, uh, and these these deep emotional, hard wiring kinds of uh, communications issues probably trump something like uh, a, a transitory notion of scarcity value. But uh, I don't think it would hurt. But I don't think it would profoundly change uh, the way you respond to it. And the other issue that's coming up for me too is just that um, it's so easy to record these things, and so many of them are being recorded that um, it's. Uh, is sort of the default to do that. And, and so you'd have to have a good reason for not recording it uh, that you'd explain to people. Uh, yeah. Some might take issue with that. So, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. You still have to keep them. I mean, that's one yes. way to get them there, but you still right. have to do uh, even more to keep them there. So, Nick, I, I don't want to play favorites here, but Chapter 10 was my favorite chapter. It was about sales. Mm. Virtual so, sales. Yeah. Yes. And I know of another author, uh, Jeb Blunt, who's during this time of quarantine, he's cranking out an ebook version about this this uh, topic that you've written a, a chapter on. Mm. And it's not just related to the virtual communication, but this has come up in so many books, and I wish more people to understand. I just want to read one more excerpt from the book. Mm. You write on page 214, the sales cycle has changed. First and most important, the internet has fundamentally changed the sales cycle. When salespeople connect with a potential customer, they typically do so much further along the sales journey. Mm -hmm. The potential customer has already researched the possible options in the ratings of your company and your rivals. For this reason, salespeople need to learn new techniques of selling, establishing a personal connection quickly, checking in on the stage of the sales journey appropriately, and moving the customer along at the right place. All this relationship management must be conducted half in the real world and half in the virtual world because the exact balance will depend on the customer or client. The salesperson not only needs to have facility in both worlds, but also needs the ability to read the customer quickly and ascertain how to best connect with the person or group in the sales cycle. These requirements make listening <laughs> something that has always been important, especially important in 
the virtual real world. So the, the, you could almost do a whole book about, I don't want to be adding to your to-do list, but you could almost do a whole <laughs> book about just the, the sales part because there were so many things you blended in here. And you also, a couple of times in your book, you talked about David Merriman Scott. And I'm such a fan. He is the godfather of the Marketing Book Podcast. I can explain to you uh, later. He was my very first mm-hmm. guest. Oh, and, fantastic. David's, David's great. And yeah. his, uh, for those who don't know uh, uh, the new rules of marketing PR and PR, it's a classic. It's now in like the 11th or 12th edition. <laughs> right. It should be on everybody's bookshelf. It is. I recommend it almost every week to somebody who's saying, what's the one book I could read to get to get up to speed on all this? Can you share with us a bit about Ryan Estes? And I don't know if he really exists or if you just uh, made him up, but it was a it really got me engaged. Maybe it's because you were putting it in story format. Yeah, so no, he's a real, real person, great speaker, good friend. Uh, Ryan uh, uh, is a classic example of somebody who comes from old school sales. He uh, he was a, a marketing guy. Uh, he reinvented himself in the two thousand eight two thousand nine uh, crash uh, and uh, uh, started a new business. Uh, and he realized that the times they were a changing, uh, and so he was an early and strong advocate of understanding especially that that uh, aspect of well two aspects the sales cycle and how that would change the sales journey if you will and then also um, the relationship that you create uh, the relationship of trust you need to create uh, with your with your customers uh, and and he's a big advocate of uh, of putting out information becoming a trusted source of information rather than somebody who uh, is uh, uh, trying to manipulate or, or push a, a, a customer into into some sale that later on uh, wouldn't necessarily be the best thing they could have done solely to make the sale. Uh, so he's, uh, he, he's a big proponent of that kind of uh, authentic approach to it and really helping helping the customer where they are uh, in the sales cycle. But he got early on the, the whole idea of the of virtual uh, the, the virtual world and how that would change change things. Yeah, and when you quoted him, he mentioned that the best salespeople today are students and their teachers. Yeah, and I love that thought. It's uh, yeah, they're 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 students of the world in which they live, and and they seek to become as expert about content the the, the content of their particular realm as they as much as they can, and then and then they're they're genuine teachers of uh, of their customers in that. Um, they're giving them free information or helpful information to help them along the journey rather than trying to, uh, as I say, push them into one sale or another uh, because it meets a certain quota. Um, so it's more about the customer than it is about the salesperson. Yeah, so I highly recommend uh, anybody who's doing involved in sales or, or uh, interested in sales uh, to, uh, to Google Ryan Estes, go to his, his uh, podcast and his, uh, his blog because there's lots of great information there about virtual virtual selling. Oh, terrific. Well, I'll make sure to include uh, links to his information in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. But when you say that people are students and their teachers, it brings together one of my favorite uh, sayings is teaching is the new pitching. It sounds like he's embraced that. Yeah. And there's one final point there, which uh, Ryan doesn't uh, talk about, but which I actually was inspired when I was doing the research for that chapter uh, by things that he said, as well as a few other folks. And that is that the in the online world, um, trust is very difficult to establish 
Um, and so it's more fragile than it is face-to-face. And I use the Thanksgiving analogy. So Thanksgiving, we all have, many of us have the embarrassing uncle or the embarrassing aunt who can be relied upon to say something unpleasant at the Thanksgiving table. Uh, but following Monday, he or she is still your uh, uncle or your aunt. Um, and that relationship endures because face-to-face, when we get to know somebody over time, we recognize they have bad days and good days. And, and we're more or less forgiving on that about that, depending on our nature. In the online world, when somebody um, is inconsistent, we just break off the communication typically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very fragile. That, that was very one of my fragile. big takeaways is that do everything you can to try to get face-to-face meetings with folks at some point. Cause yeah. it, and as I look back on my career, I realized very much so that even with a client where we hadn't seen each other for a while, it usually started out uh, with face-to-face and, and, and getting to know one another. And I should just add that the 10 commandments of online sales and sales presentations in your book <laughs> worth the price of the book. So <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, those were fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the, so the point to remember here though is consistency is what replaces trust online and so it's essential for salespeople especially but anybody involved in virtual relationships online uh, relationships to be consistent and realize that that's the measure of trust and whereas in person we allow each other to be inconsistent by human nature we are all inconsistent online we hold each other to a higher standard that's hard that's just the nature of the beast and so we have to become consistent in our online communications extremely hard to do do you think that authenticity helps trying to you know in other words not trying to be too polished but just being more yourself even though you're online yes absolutely yeah, I think it does up to a point. I mean, there's some things we don't want to know, but uh, uh, <laughs> I hear that we, a lot. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> TMI. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but seriously, yes, uh, th- th- that's why authenticity has gone hand in hand with uh, the growth and the the call for authenticity has gone hand in hand with the growth in the online world. It's simply too unbearable uh, to be just given a narrow view of somebody, uh, and we we don't trust them enough because we don't get a sense of how they would be in different settings. Um, and over time and that kind of thing. And so authenticity is just, is really the only, the only successful alternative to create uh, real trusting relationships online. Uh, But remember, you've got to be consistently authentic then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at the first sign of inauthenticity or the first sign that you don't mean what you say, then people are going to cut you loose. Absolutely. So Nick Morgan, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Ask yourself, how did what I just say make the other person feel? And if you don't know that, then ask them out loud because that will give them the uh, opportunity to tell you, which would be a good thing to learn that, and then also show that you have the respect for them and the vulnerability uh, to want to know. So ask yourself, how did what I just say make the other person feel? And if you don't know the answer to that clearly and loudly, then ask it out loud to that person. So how did my question make you feel? No, I'm kidding. Uh, so what is one thing a listener can do today, if it's not that, to, to put in, in action one of the ideas from the book? Yeah, so if you're involved in, in uh, working with a, a team at your workplace and you're working mostly online now, let's say you used to have at least some face-to-face time, but now you're mostly online, set up a check-in procedure that works as follows. 
asked them at the beginning of the call or, or a little into the call um, or the video conference or however you're communicating, how are you feeling? Uh, red light, yellow light, or, or green light. Mm. Just a very simple three-point three, uh, scale in essence. Green, of course, means everything's great and I'm doing fine. Yellow means I'm a little stressed, but isn't everybody. And red means something terrible is going on. That will give you an opportunity to check in with the red light folks. But what we find is, and I've, been, I've done this uh, with a couple of companies that, have, that I've been working with on teleworking, um, and what we find is it's not safe for people in online communications to say something like, Oh, my kid's misbehaving and, and I'm fighting with my spouse and things are awful right now. But you, people do feel comfortable saying red light. And then you can follow that up offline or in a different venue, which is safe for that person where it's just a one-on-one -on -one conversation. We don't want to report back to the team, uh, this is how my life is falling apart right now. But we can say red light, yellow light, or green light. Mm. So it's a way to keep track of how people are feeling on your team. Yes, and uh, you and, and and I think it's important to say what red light means, but not have people elaborate. Just say red light means uh, really not having a very good day at all. You know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah you got to make clear what the what the code stands for. Uh, yes. Right. What books have inspired your working career? Uh, well, um, I love I love to recommend a very esoteric one um, called A Pattern Language by Christopher Alexander. So, and and a bunch of other people. So, A Pattern Language. It's a it's work by a group of, of architects and sociologists to figure out what makes people tick when they meet together, um, and what kind of space, uh, what kind of uh, surroundings create. Uh, uh, good communications and what kind of surroundings create bad communications. Simple example, if, uh, if you're creating a building and you want the space outside it to, to be a place where people can gather and feel comfortable and, and talk and slow down and that kind of thing, then the uh, space needs to be wide enough for people to uh, create small clusters and groups. If you, if you want people to keep moving past your building, then you make the, uh, the walkway narrow, only two or three or four feet wide or whatever the minimal legal requirement is. And so they, th they've thought about space and human, um, surroundings in ways to facilitate communications and to, and to and to make them better and that's just a favorite book of mine really some profound things that i haven't seen anywhere else interesting and i see it's called a pattern language and it's even got a, a pattern wicked wikipedia page fascinating yeah it's, yeah it's a it's a profound book that's not very well known and should be better known well i'll do what i can that's uh that's very interesting i'm to dig into that so are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to seeing? Well, we mentioned my good friend, David Meerman Scott, and he's got a new book out, which just came out um, late last year, uh, Fanocracy, mm -hmm. uh, which is his new take on, uh, on how to create really strong relationships with your customers, with your with your clients uh, as a business, uh, fanocracy. It's a word he created to describe the creating of fans amongst your user base or your, your customer base. And I think it's a brilliant book and not just because he quotes me in one chapter. Uh, the book isn't about me. Um, it's, his insights are, are really, really powerful. Uh, and uh, I recommend that book highly. Oh, terrific. Yeah. I, I interviewed him about that uh, a couple months ago, and he wrote it with his daughter, Reiko. Yes. And uh, in the interview, he smoked me out and said, all right, be honest. Do you think my daughter's a better writer than I am? <laughs> I said, I think so. 
And he's a fantastic writer. So there you go. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to your site and your social media and your LinkedIn profile so listeners can uh, learn more about you. And hopefully they'll uh, follow you or at least connect with you. And and thank you for joining us on the show. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World. The author is Nick Morgan. Nick, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Douglas. It was really great fun. And that closes the book on episode 281 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in right now, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And if you'd like to record a question that could be played and answered on a future episode, email a voice recording to me at douglas at salesartillery.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Rohit Bhargava back to the show to talk about his timely book, The Non-Obvious Guide to Virtual Meetings and Remote Work. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.